And if you would turn with me, please, to Hebrews chapter 12. You'll find that in the Church Bible on page 1211 and in the large print 1875. Hebrews 12, and we'll read from verse 4 down to verse 13. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled but rather healed. This is God's word. We've seen, as we've gone through this book, this is written to men and women who are growing weary and losing heart. They're facing difficulties and they're wondering if it's worth going on. And in this passage we just read, the writer says to these discouraged people, Here is the right way to look at your life. Here's how to understand what's happening to you. If you see life this way, you will not lose heart. You'll flourish in the end. First, he says, let's get our expectations right. The Christian life involves struggle. Look again at verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. This statement has not come out of the blue. We saw this all the way through chapter 11. In that chapter, we heard about men and women who sometimes experienced great deliverances and great victories. And sometimes they endured terrible defeats and death. But whether the outcome was victory or defeat, the process for those people 
always, always involved struggle. Moses led Israel out of Egypt. What a great triumph it was. But if we were to read the context of the Exodus, we discover Pharaoh did not sit back and let those people go easily. There was a great struggle. David became king of Israel. But first, he spent years on the run from Saul, being treated as an outlaw, living in caves. Daniel emerged from the lion's den. But first, he got thrown into the lion's den. And so if you and I expect our life as Christians to be free from struggle, then we have the wrong expectations. And we will probably lose heart. If, on the other hand, we expect life to be what the Bible says it's going to be, then we will be prepared for struggle. And we will cope with it much better. Now, it is true that everyone faces struggles, whether they are Christians or not. But there are certain struggles which are unique to Christians. If you look back in chapter 12, back to verse 1, it mentions the sin that so easily entangles. So part of the struggle we face as Christians is resisting temptations to sin and enslavement to sin. Then if you look down to verse 3, part of what we struggle against is opposition from sinners. Jesus faced it, and Jesus' followers will face it too. So struggling against sin has an inward and an outward aspect to it. Sinners give us a hard time, and temptation gives us a hard time. The struggle takes place with people and circumstances outside us, and it takes place in our own hearts. And the writer of Hebrews says, if you and I take this struggle seriously, if we truly enter into this struggle, then there are going to be times when it feels like a cage fight. Where does he say that? You might ask. Look in verse 4 again. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Commentators on this passage tell us what the writer probably has in mind here is the Olympics, which were a bit different from the Olympics we know today. In those days, the climax of the Olympics was the pentathlon, which then consisted of running, jumping, discus, javelin, and a fight. A combination of wrestling and boxing. The opening verses of chapter 12 use the illustration of running a race. The start of the pentathlon. And verse 4, it seems, is referring to the climax of the pentathlon. The fight. And so the message is, you are already losing heart because you're running a race that requires perseverance. You're already disheartened because you find out it's a marathon and not a sprint. Well, folks, you haven't even got to the part where you get punched in the mouth. Why is he talking like this? 
Because one of the keys to coping with life is facing life with the right expectations. If you and I get up every morning expecting that we're going to escape struggle and suffering, then our life is going to be filled with frustration and disappointment and bitterness. Because we cannot escape struggle and suffering. Our expectations play a major part in whether we go through life miserable or not. Now at this point, we might begin to think the writer of Hebrews is maybe a Stoic or a Buddhist, the way he's talking. Stoicism and Buddhism both say the way to live well, the only way to live well, is to give up hope. Hope is a killer. The way to survive, say Stoicism and Buddhism, is just to submit to whatever comes along. Detach yourself from love and enjoyment. Harden your heart and you'll make it through life. Now we need to realize that is not what the writer of Hebrews is calling us to do. He agrees we will certainly face struggle and suffering. But he says the way to respond is not to give up hope. That's the worst thing you could do. What we need is to recognize the purpose of our struggles and suffering. We need to see that our Father is training us. Now the Bible as a whole has more to say about suffering. It tells us that suffering exists because of sin. It tells us that one day God is going to create a world without suffering. So our thinking about struggle and suffering has to include those elements. But it also has to include what we're going to find in this passage. Yes, struggle and suffering exist because this world is broken. And yes, one day struggle and suffering will pass away. But while they exist, they have a part to play in God's good purposes for us. He uses them for our good. Look again at verse 5. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, my son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? I would suspect that for many of us, the word discipline immediately brings with it plenty of negative ideas in our minds. Maybe it brings a picture of a Victorian schoolmaster with a cane. Maybe even an authoritarian boss that we face in our lives. Maybe what comes to mind when we hear the word discipline is punishment and the sense of payback or just inflicting pain for pain's sake. And because those are the things that come to our minds, we need to realize the word translated discipline here has a very specific meaning. 
It's the word paideia, from which we get our word pediatrics, the branch of medical care that focuses on children. It's concern for the overall health and well-being of the child. And originally the word referred to bringing up children. So what these verses are talking about is training. The motivation for this is not punishment. The motivation is a concern for our health and our well-being. And this is not the care of a teacher or of a doctor who might only know us superficially. And maybe only can care for us in a fairly general way. Now the care we're talking about here is the care of a father. A father who knows us perfectly. A father who cares for us in the deepest possible way. Now this kind of training will include correction. We find the words rebuke and chasten in this passage. But when correction happens... It is correction that's designed to make us flourish, not to make us pay. But we mustn't think that this is just about correction. If we begin to think that all suffering in our lives is because there's some sin that we need to repent of, then we're often going to misunderstand what's going on in our lives. We saw that a few months ago when we looked at the book of Job. Job's friends, remember, saw him suffering and they assumed he was hiding some sin. But the book of Job made it very, very clear that was not the case. That's not why Job was suffering. Our Father may send suffering to chasten us and bring us to repentance. But he may also send it when we're being obedient. In those cases, he sends it to help us develop and mature and become stronger. Whenever your doctor tells you you need to exercise, what is your doctor really asking you to do? They're asking you to make your body suffer in order to make it stronger. When we exercise, we're putting stress on our body. We're subjecting it to opposition in some way in order to make it healthier. So if you lift a weight, you're making your muscles deal with resistance so they can get stronger. It's the same when we walk up a hill or pedal a bike or swim through the resistance of water. We put our body under stress in those situations, not because we want to harm it, but because we want to help it. We're trying to train it to function better. And that means shedding the flab that holds us back and slows us down. And that's what's behind the idea here. When suffering comes, our Father's purpose is never to destroy us It's never to pay us back. His purpose is always to train us. Later in the passage, the word gymnasium is used. Life 
is the gymnasium. And it's not the gym of a harsh coach who's willing to push us and push us and push us until we break. This is the gym of a loving father. A father who is working for our health. He's training us to flourish, not to collapse. Later on in the passage, we'll hear about the goal that God has for us. But first, look carefully at the alternative to this. What would it mean if God did not work to train us? Look at verse 8. If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate. Not true sons and daughters at all. So if we were to ask what kind of children are not trained by their father, the answer is unloved children. Children to whom the father feels no responsibility. Children who the father is willing to see ruined. Those are the kind of children who escape training. One writer says, an absence of discipline actually indicates a father's rejection. I have a vivid memory of one of the first holiday Bible clubs that I helped out with. It was in the church where I grew up, and every year we got lots of kids who didn't normally come to the church. And after a couple of days, I realized that one of the boys in my group that I was responsible for had no concept at all of personal hygiene. Specifically, he had no knowledge of the need to clean himself after he used the toilet. And he was well past the age when he should have been able to take care of that. And that boy had no difficulty understanding and following instructions. He had no learning difficulty in that sense. But the thing that sticks out to me was the comment another leader made when I called that other leader in to help me. He dealt with the situation and he said to me afterwards, all that little boy needed was a simple demonstration by an adult. All he needed was some basic instructions and training. Now I never find out anything about that boy's home situation. But it would seem that boy had no one in his life who loved him enough to give him that simple training. There was no one at home who loved him enough to save him from going through his day soiled and stinking. And if he wasn't being trained in that basic skill, what other training was that boy being deprived of? The absence of training in that boy's life pointed to a lack of love in his life. More recently, a teenager told me about his younger sister. He said that when she came along, his parents decided on a new approach to their parenting. They decided they were never going to set any limits on what their daughter was allowed to do. And so, he told me, one day 
her brother came home to find his sister throwing the contents of her bedroom out of the upstairs window onto the front lawn. And while that was going on, her parents sat in the living room and did nothing. Now those parents may have convinced themselves they were being loving. But most people would say, by refusing to set any boundaries for their daughter, they were actually setting her up for a miserable life. When she finally did run into boundaries in the big, wide world outside of her home. So maybe that girl had more attention from her parents than the boy I mentioned a moment ago. But were those parents really treating her any more like a true daughter? Both neglectfulness and permissiveness with our children amount to just about the same thing in the end. They amount to a refusal to love the child enough to train the child. And the writer of Hebrews says to us, when your heavenly father works to train you, recognize it for the privilege it is. You have a father who wants to see you grow strong and flourish. And in the verses that follow, we're told, The results of God's training are priceless. Look at verse 9. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us, that's our human parents, for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. I think it's pretty much a given that some of us in this room will have had bad parents. We will have had parents who disciplined us all right, but their form of discipline was ultimately harmful to us. And we most certainly did not respect them for it. If that is your experience, please don't switch off from this. Instead, notice the writer of Hebrews acknowledges human parenting is a mixed bag. He says our parents disciplined us as they thought best. And I think we know even when parents love a child and even when they try their best, their discipline is always imperfect. Sometimes they can't figure out what kind of discipline is best for their individual child. Sometimes they can't figure out what's best in each situation. And sometimes even good parents are harsh. There is a dose of payback in their discipline. Other times they apply discipline with very good intention But it's the wrong kind of discipline. Or it's too much. It harms even sometimes when it was meant to help. These verses give you and I permission to say that if we have experienced that. 
And then they draw a distinction. Human parents disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good. Yes, human parents can mess it up even with the very best of intentions. But God doesn't mess it up. His motives are perfect. His wisdom is perfect. He knows exactly what's needed and he applies it perfectly. Those of you who exercise, you know there can be a fine line sometimes between pushing yourself in a way that's beneficial and pushing beyond that so you actually do yourself harm. It's good to push your body to run faster. It's not good to push it until it collapses. You and I don't always get that right. But when it comes to God, our Father's work to train us, He always gets it right. He will never apply an ounce of pressure more than will do you good. He will never push you for a second longer than is necessary. His training will never cross the line from being helpful to being harmful. There is no wrath or payback in his training. We saw earlier in Hebrews, those who come to Christ will never deal with God as an angry judge. He is now our devoted father. His training is always and only for our good. And that good is defined for us in verse 10. Our father trains us in order that we may share in his holiness. The implication is, We can't share in his holiness without his training. The only way for us to mature and to throw off the things that hinder us and the sin that entangles us, the only way is to go through struggle. Struggle makes us shed our false hopes and our immature dreams and our dead-end ambitions. It causes us to get serious about what really matters. And what really matters is God. As we go through his training, we learn to value him more than anything. And we begin to become more like him. We begin to shed ungodliness and acquire godliness. Like a body sheds flab and develops muscle. And for someone who is not a Christian, there's just no attraction in that at all. What do they care about holiness? But for the man or woman who loves God, who longs for Him more than anything else, then holiness is priceless. It's worth any amount of struggle and training. And just to be clear, the struggle does not make us into children. We don't earn acceptance through our struggle. This passage has worked hard to show us the struggle comes to us because we are children already. 
It comes because we've been accepted. This is not about earning holiness. It's about accepting God's gift of forgiveness and new life in Jesus. And then finding we have a Father who loves us enough to develop holiness in us. Who works lovingly to make us more like himself. few moments ago we were given permission to say my human parents got it wrong when it came to discipline and here verse 11 gives us permission to say I do not enjoy God's discipline I hear all you're saying about it's good for me but I don't like it and I don't see how it's good for me Yes, I do want to be holy, but I don't see how these struggles are making me holy. Verse 11 gives us permission to say that. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Children almost never understand their parents' discipline. It almost never makes sense to the child at the time. The parent says, no, you can't eat all five of your Easter eggs at once. And the child says, why not? Why would you want to deny me such an enjoyable experience? Don't you love me? The parent says, you can't go to the party because you haven't done your homework yet. Why not? How could doing my homework possibly be more important than going to the party. The parent says, you have to take a shower tonight. Why? I took one last week. Why do I need a shower when I feel perfectly fine without it? The child never understands at the time. As far as they're concerned, the parent's regime is always unfair. The training goes on too long, it's too hard, and actually it's pointless. At the time, the child always has a better idea of how things should go. And what you and I are being asked to accept is, in this scenario, we are the children. And so we will almost never understand at the time what our Heavenly Father is doing. We'll never understand at the time how this experience could possibly be good for us. But we are being called to trust our Father's love and His wisdom and His skill. We're being called to trust That his discipline is always for our good. And then we're told our participation is required. Verse 11. No discipline seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. 
The reality is struggle and suffering either make us far better people or they make us far worse people, depending on how we respond to struggle and suffering. It is possible to respond to God's training by becoming bitter and resentful people or by falling into despair. If you look back up to verse 5, There's a quotation there from the book of Proverbs. And that quotation from Proverbs tells us it is possible to respond to God's training by making light of it. The way a child does when you say to the child, you can't go to the party because you haven't done your homework yet. And the child says, I didn't want to go to the party anyway. Parties are stupid. That is making light of the parent's discipline. It's refusing to learn from the parent's discipline. The child is just gritting their teeth until it's over. With no desire to benefit from what's going on. It's possible to do that with God's discipline too. To say, well, maybe this sin is holding me back, but it's who I am. God made me like this. Have you ever heard that? It's not my fault I behave this way. That is making light of God's discipline. Blaming him for the things he wants to help you overcome. Verse 5 says, It is also possible to lose heart when God works to train us. Like a child who says... It's hopeless. I'll never get through this. No good could ever come out of this. When a child reacts like that, they're assuming they know more than their parent does. They're saying, this looks hopeless to me, so it must be hopeless. Tim Keller says, despair is always an act of arrogance. When you and I despair, we're saying we can see more than God can. We can see no way forward, so there can't be any way forward. God couldn't possibly see more than I can see. Despair is always an act of arrogance. And Keller goes on to say, despair actually is for omniscient people. People who know all there is to know. Are you and I omniscient? We often act like we are. It would take omniscience for us to lose all hope in our situation. Hebrews says, don't make light of the Lord's discipline and don't lose heart over it either. There is a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who will enter into the process and seek to be trained by it. I mentioned earlier we get the word gymnasium from the word that's used here in verse 11. It's the word translated trained. God has set up the gym. You and I 
are to make use of it. When struggle comes, it's pretty unlikely we will understand what it's for. It's unlikely that it will feel pleasant. But will we trust in our situation that what we are facing is paideia? Not payback, not ultimately harmful, but carefully chosen training sent by a loving father. And trusting that, will we then do what verses 12 and 13 call us to do? Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. How do we do this? How do we participate in God's training? Well, when suffering and struggle come, we can ask ourselves, what are the feeble and weak parts in my life? What in my life needs to be strengthened or corrected? Do I treat other people the way this arrogant, unforgiving person is treating me? Is my hope set on my wealth or my position in life? Am I trusting in my own resourcefulness and skills to deal with life? And if I'm losing those things, or if they're failing me, is this an opportunity to truly throw off a false hope that I've been clinging to? Is it an opportunity to truly put my hope in God? In this situation, whatever it is, how might God be working to enable me to share in his holiness? Now, The answers to those questions might not immediately be clear. But simply by asking those kind of questions... We are saying to our Father, I want to be trained by your discipline. I want to strengthen my feeble arms and weak knees. I want to share in your holiness in the end. I know that I'm lame in so many ways. There are so many areas of my life where I'm just limping along. But I don't want to resist your training until I become disabled. I want to participate in your training so that I can be healed of my pride or my self-reliance or my greed or whatever it is that's making me spiritually lame. God has a glorious destiny in mind for us. Hebrews chapter 2 said, He is bringing many sons and daughters to glory. And the struggles in your life and my life are not designed to crush us. They are to move us forward. So let's ask God to help us, first of all, begin to look at our lives in that way. 
and then to begin to participate in his training. Our last song assures us, and we need to be assured of this, he is working for our good, even in our deepest distress. Let's sing how firm a foundation.